primary care knowledge boost, pain in palliative care. Welcome. Today we're talking to Dr. Liam Hosey and Dr. Annie Murray about pain control in palliative patients. Yes, we ask them first about their general approach to pain in the palliative care setting and then we move on to touch on the management options that are available to us in these patients. Yeah, and we also talked about the use of opioids in breathlessness and we talk about agitation as a symptom and how to go about managing it. We'll be back with our learning points at the end of the chat and we hope you enjoy. Um, so we always kick off with introductions so that the listeners know who we're talking to today. So um, if you each want to just introduce yourselves for everybody. Okay, I'm um, Dr. Liam Hosey. I'm a GP uh, in Wigan, end of life lead GP for Wigan Borough CCG. And I'm Dr. Anna Murray. I'm the medical director at Wigan and Lee Hospice. So just to frame uh, the rest of the episode, we're coming at these questions from a palliative perspective, because I know the answers might be slightly different if we're not thinking in that way. Um, So if we start with pain as a symptom, looking more generally, how would you normally approach a patient who's reporting pain in a palliative setting? I guess um, pain's probably the the main reason we get referrals um, from GPs in the community. And the majority of patients that we see have a cancer diagnosis and there can be an assumption that people with cancer will always end up with pain problems. And it's probably true that about two thirds of patients with cancer will have pain um, at some point, but it's really important to know why they've got pain. So when we're assessing patients, that's sort of our first thought is why is this pain happening because having cancer isn't a good good enough reason because cancer can cause pain in lots of different ways and and some of the reasons people have pain won't actually be connected to the cancer so we see patients who've had chronic pain who now have cancer and how we'll approach those will be slightly different than patients that have got pain because of their disease and we might see patients with pain because of the treatment of their cancer And again, the approach to that would be different. And patients with cancer have comorbidities, so it might be another reason or general debility that's causing their pain. So pain assessment is all about why is the pain happening? So we can work out the best way of managing it because it's not going to be sort of one size fits all. It's going to be individualised, even though we tend to follow a particular sort of pattern in how we approach medications in pain. Yeah. As, as Anna mentioned as well, I think as, as GPs, we do see a lot of people who have chronic illnesses or chronic problems, and then they start to coexist with the reason why that person now requires palliative input. Um, and I think sometimes it's you know also worth assessing, is it a new pain and what have they tried before, um, what has worked well before, because some of these patients may have been acute inpatients and had some treatment which really helped and they come back out into a community setting so that's just part of I think of the bit of the detective work type stuff that we do as GPs. And if we start at the basics again in terms of the actual options for pain medications can you talk us through the different pain medications and common drugs used for pain in palliative care? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, when we're looking at managing pain, the first thing we want to do is really set goals with the patients of what we're going to achieve. And I think it's really important to be upfront 
about what we can and can't achieve. One of the approaches we sometimes take is to um, try and set sort of mini goals to achieve. So if somebody isn't able to sleep because of pain, the first thing you would want to do is is help them get a better night's sleep because controlling pain when someone is not moving around potentially is going to be easier than controlling the pain when they are moving around. So maybe then the next step would be to get them sleeping through and um, comfortable when they're sitting resting and then the final step might be to try and address their pain when they move but you're up front and say I might not achieve all of those steps and you might need to adjust their expectations quite frequently we see people who've been told that the hospice or the palliative care nurse will sort their pain out and they come with an expectation that we can't actually achieve so in terms of medications The general principles are around finding a medication that works and that will depend on the type of pain and it will depend on the patient and their comorbidities. The general approach we take as sort of a first step is to follow the WHO um, analgesic ladder. So you start with non-opioids usually. So paracetamol for the majority of people would be the first step. And The principle also is to make sure that you're giving medications orally where that's possible because that's the most straightforward and accessible route for patients. But you're also giving medication regularly um, and the reason for that is you don't want to wait until someone's got pain to then treat the pain. You need to individualise it so not everyone can take oral medications so there will be times that you'll look at different routes So if you start a medication for pain, you have to have a plan to follow that up so that you know that it's working. Or if it's not working, you can do something else to to help and support the patient. There may be some description within the pain that makes you think that using sort of an adjuvant analgesic alongside that would be helpful. But rather than talk about those straight away, I think talking about what you do on the ladder is probably the thing to concentrate on at the moment. You start someone on paracetamol and you review them and find that it hasn't helped their pain or it hasn't fully relieved their pain. You move on to the next step on the ladder and that's a weak opioid. And generally, I think for the majority of GPs, that probably means codeine. Other drugs that would sit at that point on the ladder are tramadol and dihydrocodeine, but we generally don't see those prescribed as frequently because of side effect profiles really. So codeine acts as a weak opioid, it's actually metabolised to morphine in the body and about one in ten people can't metabolise it properly. So for some people it'll just have no effect on the pain at all and for others they'll find it quite helpful but it doesn't relieve pain fully for everybody. So we do end up moving on to the next step of the ladder, which is a stronger opioid. And the the drug of choice is morphine. And that's mainly based on experience, on cost, and on um, the fact that it's fairly um, straightforward to use. And certainly for us, it's readily available for patients as well. So when you're looking at moving through the ladder, you're always wanting to increase the level of analgesia that the the patient's getting. So when you move from the weak opioid step to the strong opioid step, you need to know how much morphine the codeine's equivalent to because if you then give them a dose that's lower to that, they're going to want to go back onto their codeine and we see that quite frequently. Okay. Codeine's about 
10 times weaker than morphine. So most people, if they're on codeine, the maximum dose they would be having in a day would be a 60 milligram dose four times a day. Yeah. So that's 240 milligrams in a day. So to get the same dose of morphine, you divide that by 10. So they're already at that point on the equivalent of 24 milligrams of morphine in a day. You then start giving them sort of 2.5 of morphine orally and you only let them have it four times a day, they're really not going to trust that morphine's ever going to help their pain. So um, what I would tend to suggest, you can go straight on to a, a modified release morphine preparation. And because they've already been having the equivalent of 24 milligrams in a day, you're probably quite safe for the majority of patients going on to the equivalent of 30 milligrams in a day as a modified release because that increases their analgesia but not by too much so it's probably going to be safe. I would always prescribe them as every 12 hours rather than twice a day because it gives the patients the instruction that they need because if you say twice a day they'll take it when it's convenient not in a way that it's metabolised and they need to have it every 12 hours to keep a nice steady level. I think Anna mentioned something very important as well there about the sort of the ability to review the effectiveness of whatever we, we do. I think just generally speaking for a second, I think in general practice, we've seen a lot of patients who are non-palliative, who have been on high doses of opioid medications because quite simply they've come back and said that pain isn't controlled by these medications and we've just pushed medicines up and up and up. And that perhaps should be telling us something isn't working. And I think the same concept should apply to palliative care. If we're doing something, it's not working. We should be asking why that is. And it may be something as eloquently described as Anna, that we've just got the dose calculation a bit wrong and we've actually given them less than we were giving before with codeine. Or it may be that it's not effective and we need to, to rethink and, and ask, you know, what the problem could be. Um, are there other reasons for it? And equally, I think part of that review, we should always be checking for some of the common side effects um, of stronger analgesia, so, such as constipation, drowsy, being drowsy, sorry, nausea, and other interactions of other medicines that these patients may be on. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And it's really nice actually to go back and cover the WHO ladder again, sort of when and how to use it really, because actually um, with the kind of shift away from opioid medications in chronic pain that we're seeing in primary care, I'm not a big prescriber of opioid medications. Uh, so considering how to do it well is really important in the context of palliative care where it is appropriate. And then just thinking about a hypothetical case for you. So we've taken an example of a patient with metastatic colon cancer, for example, who was complaining of a shooting pain down their arm. We've tried small doses of opioids and it's not being relieved. We've assessed them. We're presuming in this instance, there's no concerning features for this pain. But where would you go next if opioids aren't really working? I think with somebody in that position, I probably would be considering adding in an adjuvant because the description of the pain makes you feel that it could be neuropathic in nature and quite often opioids won't fully address neuropathic pain. 
when you've prescribed the opioids, you, as well as the modified release ones, you'd hope that um, somebody would have an immediate release preparation they could use for breakthrough pain. My first approach, if somebody's pain is not controlled, is to look at whether they're using that breakthrough medication and whether they think it's helpful, because you may find that actually you could adjust the opioids slightly and, and get a better effect. But with somebody with true neuropathic pain, quite frequently you will need need an adjuvant. And we have a similar approach really to other neuropathic pain in that we tend to use tricyclic antidepressants. So amitriptyline probably is the one we use most frequently as our first line um, and then we would look at gabapentin potentially as a, a second line approach if amitriptyline either is contraindicated, which it is for some patients, or has caused intolerable side effects, or potentially if you've maximised amitriptyline and pain is still a still a problem. Um, so when we're prescribing amitriptyline, we don't use the same doses as it's been used as an antidepressant and we don't get to as high a dose. So really the maximum dose for pain probably would be 75. I have to say I generally would go up to about 50, and if people aren't benefiting, I think they're unlikely to. If we are moving to sort of a second-line approach with, with gabapentin, we would choose gabapentin over pregabalin. We'd only want to really look at pregabalin. If someone has tried gabapentin, They've benefited from it, um, but they can't tolerate it because of side effects. The start dose for gabapentin will is individualised really to the patient. Um, so for some people, we'd start with what I would sort of say was normal dosing. So you could start with 300 milligrams and increase in 300 milligram increments until you're on... I'd probably say you'd want to be getting to 600 milligrams three times a day before you said it wasn't effective um, because we see a lot, a lot of people with um, comorbidities or they're generally quite frail. We sometimes start with 100 milligrams and, and do a slow titration instead. Yeah. But it's very much it's individualised to the patient. The other drug we would specifically use for neuropathic pain in the community setting would be duloxetine and that's that's good if somebody's got anxiety issues as well yeah but we we probably don't use that as frequently as as the tricyclics or the gabapentinoids okay but yeah it's worth considering if you've got kind of dual um dual symptoms going on there so you can tackle both without needing multiple medications and kind of thinking about the opioids um, as like a drug group, they're obviously very good for um, for pain in a palliative setting when used appropriately. But I have seen them prescribed for other reasons. Um, do you want to talk us through what else they can be used for at the end of life? Um, we do use opioids um, mainly for respiratory symptoms, I guess. So um, certainly at end of life, I guess the big thing would be breathlessness. Yeah. And we use them before end of life as well for, for patients who are troubled by breathlessness, but very much um, find that people with respiratory problems, those can increase towards end of life. And the use of opioids basically reduces the perception of shortness of breath. So it might not impact directly on the respiratory rate, but the individual's perception of how their breathlessness feels is changed. Okay. 
and they have an impact on anxiety as well. And then the other thing that they do is obviously manage pain. And if you are in pain, one of the physiological responses can be for your respiratory rate to increase. So if you help their pain, you can indirectly help their breathlessness as well. If somebody's already taken opioids, sometimes you can use slightly lower doses as sort of on a PRM basis. So just when someone is feeling breathless, then you would use to manage their pain. So people who are already taking opioids, it will be dependent on the dose that they're taking, what dose you would use for breathlessness. But for someone who's not had opioids before, if they're able to take oral medication, 2.5 milligrams of an oral immediate release morphine preparation would be a safe dose to start with. And we'd usually prescribe it sort of two to four hourly as required with a maximum of six doses in a day. And that, that's safe, uh, a safe way of prescribing it. I think people worry about respiratory depression, but starting with a small dose and limiting the amount that someone can take generally is a safe approach. I think Anna mentioned as well about this, um, even in non-palliative patients, we, we, we've used opioids for, for breathlessness. I think perhaps the group of patients that spring to mind, would, would that would be the sort of chronic heart failure patients. And we could have a discussion about when do they reach sort of a, a palliative stage as well, but it can be a sort of small dose of morphine can be very effective for the breathlessness there. Equally, I think a lot of the time when we use opioids, the communication with our patients is key as well, because I think some patients attribute using opioids to being the start of a terminal diagnosis or decline. And I think if we explain that to the patients or their carers, actually this is something that's really going to help your symptoms, it doesn't mean that you know, you're looking at the, the last few days of your life just yet. I think that could be quite beneficial because um, I think most of us as GPs, you know, we often prescribe things that never leave the, the, the bottle or the packet when the patient gets home if we don't explain to them why we're doing what, we, what we're doing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the importance of framing it um, so that the patient understands. Liam's right about the information that we provide being key to people actually taking the medication. And I think just in relation to opioids, um, specific information about side effects can be really helpful because if people experience side effects, and they will, if you said to them, this might happen and this is what we'll do about it, they're much more likely to continue so Liam's already mentioned the main side effects, but I would say for everybody that we prescribe an opioid for, we should prescribe a laxative at the same time. They don't necessarily need to take it straight away, but the fact that they've got it there and you've said to them this could constipate you and if it does, start taking it is really important. Um, the other side effects that stop people from taking opioids, nausea and vomiting, that tends to be something that you see initially and it wears off. It's a bit like when you start drinking alcohol and you're, you're essentially just poisoning yourself with chemicals and you feel sick and then you build up a tolerance. <laughs> That's how I describe it to patients. Right. You might want to tailor it, but um, people will feel sick and if they do, they'll stop taking their opioid and we'll end up having to look for some an alternative when probably if we'd actually just given them an antiemetic and persevered, we would have got through that stage and they would have been fine with the, the morphine after that. And it's similar with drowsiness. 
not complete sedation, but people just feeling more tired, that will wear off. But it's why you need to give people advice about driving when you're adjusting opioid doses as well. That's a really good point, yeah. Moving on now to agitation towards the end of life. Can you talk us through how you approach this? Um, at end of life, I guess the principles for me are similar to when I assess people at other times, which is why is it happening? So really going back to what we said about pain, knowing why somebody is agitated can really help you to, to decide the, the right management for them. Um, so if they've not been agitated previously, why have they suddenly become agitated? And it can be relatively simple things that can be solved with non-drug approaches. So we see patients who are still constipated and they've got abdominal pain and can't express it. We see patients who develop urinary retention, who catheterization might be the answer to their agitation. Uncontrolled pain um, that they can't express might be the cause of agitation. Yeah, There are other th- things like infection causing delirium. So I'm not saying we should be giving antibiotics to everyone, but there are patients who potentially would benefit if they're able to take things orally and you can give something that's just once a day. But we do see patients, particularly in the last days of life, who probably would benefit from using medications that would cause sedation because of their agitation. So our standard approach is to use um, benzodiazepines and midazolam because you can give that subcutaneously so you're not dependent on somebody being able to swallow. So you can give subcut injections sort of on an as-required basis and if someone's needing that more than a couple of times a day, you might consider putting that into a syringe pump so they're getting a small dose continually to try and prevent them from becoming agitated again. So the intention isn't to sedate them in a way that would make them unconscious. It's to provide enough relief of their agitation and anxiety that they're settled. Yeah. Um, yes. But hopefully still able to be alert at times. I think it, it's not dissimilar to previous conversations we've had about sort of explanations to often at this stage when we're in the last days of life it's a lot of the time it's the carers rather than the, the, the patient if they're truly in the last day or two of life but explaining what we're doing and why we, we're doing it and actually if we're using subcutaneous benzodiazepines it's there to treat a symptom that is causing distress rather than to make someone sedated and hasten death it's there to actually treat symptoms and actually make that person much more comfortable. And the reason we're doing it via subcutaneous routes in the last day or two of life is quite simply because that patient has lost the ability to swallow medications. And it's a way of getting medicines to that patient to, to help them rather than to any to hasten any process, which sometimes if we don't explain that, you're then left you know with a, an irate phone call from a relative saying, what are you doing? Um, but actually, and it's like many things, if we can address that with appropriate communication at the time, it, it will make the journey much more smoother. Yeah, it's a very good point, Liam. I think the other important thing is to make sure that you're carrying on other medications that would prevent them from becoming agitated. So for people who've had pain, you've got to make sure they're still getting their analgesia by a route that works for them. Um, We see patients who've been heavy smokers who get agitated, think about nicotine withdrawal, 
So certainly in the in the hospice setting, anyone who's been a smoker, we all most routinely think about nicotine replacement therapy as a patch, um, and that can really help some patients who are agitated. And then the other group I would think about are people who may become agitated because they've got brain metastases and they've been on a regular dose of steroid and you can carry the steroid on as a, a subcutaneous injection. I don't think everyone who's been on steroids needs to stay on steroids at end of life. It depends on why they're on the steroids, but um, brain metastases certainly would be quite a strong indicator for prescribing subcut um, dexamethasone. Yeah. It gives you a sort of a look, a window into kind of when to consider changing medications from oral to subcut. When would you consider changing the routes or talk us through kind of some of the issues around changing the routes, if you will? Certainly at end of life, we would consider it best practice to have subcutaneous injections available for patients to manage pain and breathlessness and agitation, but also respiratory secretions and nausea and vomiting, which I know we're going to talk in more detail about at another time. I would also suggest that um, when patients have needed regular medications to prevent some of those symptoms, we need to look at how to continue to provide that regularly. So it is a time that we think about using a uh, a syringe pump to administer medication over 24 hours yeah. and patients and families can be quite wary about syringe pumps they do associate them with death um, we are talking about last days of life so that's not unreasonable but we do use syringe pumps at other times as well dependent upon patient symptoms so there are times when patients can't take oral medications and a syringe pump might be needed earlier in the Ill- illness course and there are times when um, patients might not be absorbing medications very well. So if someone yeah. is being sick, giving them all medications might not work. And you might use a syringe pump for a limited period at that time. But you'd have to, again, come back to explanation and making sure the patient and the family understand the reason why you're suggesting a syringe pump. Um, and that actually you'll be reviewing that and in all likelihood if it is related to something like nausea and vomiting you'll be discontinuing that pump once the sim- symptoms are settled great uh, what, what i was going to say sort of just back on what anna said as, as well is from a, a day-to-day job in gp perspective i think it really is knowing about you know what is available locally so using the correct forms um, how to transmit your prescriptions, um, being practical. So um, if you're approaching a weekend, you might need to have slightly more um, quantities of medications prescribed so you don't want families having to, to run around to try and get those over the weekend. The other thing, I think that every single GP in their local area should have the number of their local hospice in their mobile phone because when you're stuck, we do need to ring for advice. Um, I think Anna has spoken incredibly eloquently about a lot of these medications and that's because she's such an expert and I think us in general practice we may only deal with people in the last days of life two or three times a year maybe as a GP and to expect us to remember everything that we need to do all the time can be quite a challenge and certainly if you're considering prescribing someone steroids um, subcutaneously for agitation because of brain metastases um, I think I might be picking the phone up and asking a friend to say, how do I do this? What should I do? 
Um, I think most you know, local hospices and, and local palliative colleagues would be more than happy to help advise on that because they, they realise you know that is actually one of their roles to, to assist us. So I think knowing who you can ask locally is as important as knowing what drugs you can and can't use. That's a very good point. Um, and that probably leads us on to our last question, um, which is just that um, you mentioned about local guidelines there. Um, and we know that the Greater Manchester um, guidance has just changed a little bit recently with uh, regards to palliative medications. Um, do you want to just give us a very brief update about the main important changes that GPs need to know about with relation to pain? Yeah, so um, there is a Greater Manchester Pain and Symptom Control Guideline. Um, it's on version five now. So that was released towards the end of last year. So in different areas, it's been rolled out at different times. Within that, there's a lot of detail and it's available online. So it's really easily accessible. I would say from a non-specialist perspective, always use it when you're looking at how to increase medications convert between different types of medications because there are um, conversion tables in there and as a specialist I use them so I would expect generalists to use them as well. In relation to pain there's specific guidance around how to titrate opioids when you might want to refer into palliative care services Um, so you don't feel that you're you're struggling with difficult pain without support. And the use of adjuvants is is very clearly laid out in a way that's in line with nice guidance around the management of neuropathic pain in in non-malignant conditions as well. It's got a lot of information about why as well as what, if that makes sense, so that you can feel more comfortable making decisions around symptom management. But like Liam said, there is always a hospice at the end of the phone if you feel it's not something that you, you're comfortable with because we deal with it every day. And although you're managing patients um, who have terminal diagnoses, you're also managing everything else as well. So, so being an expert at it is a challenge. Yeah, that's really useful. And we'll put the links to the pain management guidelines as well. Brilliant. Uh, so we're going to catch up uh, and talk about um, some other bits of palliative care for our next episode. But um, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today about um, about pain. And, and we touched on breathlessness and agitation. So we covered quite a lot today. Yeah. <laughs> so we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So that was lovely, wasn't it? I know. It was such a good chat with them, like just putting it into perspective they were really good at simplifying it all down. I can't believe that we actually got so many bits into such a short space of time. Yeah, I'm just looking through my notes at the moment, which I will show you, Lisa. They are a little bit crazy. <laughs> oh, no, that's very neat. You should see mine. It's uh, where we are. It's classic doctor writing. Okay, I, I can't even read my own writing, so this will be good to try and get the learning points. <laughs> yeah, so looking at mine, I was kind of working away. The things I wanted to write down, I guess, were just bits about kind of setting goals about pain relief yeah. um, and then thinking about the different types of pain, being systematic. I always love that when we talk to people about any topic, just trying to have a systematic approach to it. So start it like, is this a cancer pain and what type of pain is it? Yeah, right. Actually, those were my first two points as well. I wrote down um, to remember to assess pain properly, that it's not always due to the main illness that they have. 
and to be realistic with the patient from the beginning about what you can achieve so that's the same as your setting goals because I think that's really important because if their expectations are up here like really high mm-hmm. you're never going to meet them so it's important to have that discussion right from the get-go really. Yeah I quite like um, hearing their take on when patients get to them the expectations so yeah. sort of oh they the, you know they were expecting that the palliative care team would sort out their pain and uh, that just reminds me like I hope I've not said that to anyone but you know it's a reminder. <laughs> it is a very good reminder and then what else have I written down? Oh, the, the same thing again about framing. So um, explanations to patients and relatives about the role of, of opiates and um, so that they're not thinking like Liam said about it being at the end of life, that sometimes we do use them earlier than that and the reasons why and how that can get people a lot more on board. Um, and then their mm-hmm. symptoms will be better controlled. Yes, totally agree with you. The other thing that surprised me was um, or that I never really consider um, was smoking and agitation. I don't think that's ever crossed my mind um, before because when you're in that palliative stage, you can't imagine necessarily the patient being a smoker. And and it's not something that I think is going to be crossing relatives' minds as well to necessarily tell you when there's so much other things going on. It's completely understandable. So, yeah, that was really interesting to consider that as a cause of agitation. Yeah, definitely. And I really liked their systematic approach to agitation as well, sort of considering uh, that pain can agitate, constipation can agitate, Um, retention infections as well as like the medications so just take a step yeah just take a step back look at all the different reasons and then and then go from there yeah really interesting yeah i know it was great i'm really looking forward to the um chat about uh the gi symptoms in palliative care i think that'll be really good yeah absolutely so yeah if you want to get in touch with us there are a couple of different ways that you can do that we have a twitter account and the handle is at pckb podcast and we love interacting with you on there if you want to get in touch let us know what you think and we also have an email address which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and you can send us an email if you want as well yeah and our favorite way of you getting in touch is filling out the survey which is just a link on the episode description uh, that you can follow and thank you to those of you that have already completed that we're working on some of the suggestions as well Exactly. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.